Chapter 4.5 of the 9-11 Commission Report This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The 9-11 Commission Report Chapter 4.5 Boots on the Ground Starting on the day the August 1998 strikes were launched, General Shelton had issued a planning order to prepare follow-on strikes, and think beyond just using cruise missiles. The initial strikes had been called Operation Infinite Reach. The follow-on plans were given the code name Operation Infinite Resolve. At the time, any actual military action in Afghanistan would have been carried out by General Zini's Central Command. This command was therefore the locus for most military planning. Zini was even less enthusiastic than Cohen and Shelton about follow-on cruise missile strikes. He knew that the Tomahawks did not always hit their targets. After the August 20 strikes, President Clinton had had to call Pakistani Prime Minister Sheriff to apologize for a wayward missile that had killed several people in a Pakistani village. Sheriff had been understanding while commenting on American quote-unquote overkill. Zini feared that bin Laden would in the future locate himself in cities where U.S. missiles could kill thousands of Afghans. He worried also lest Pakistani authorities not get adequate warning, think the missiles came from India, and do something that everyone would later regret. Discussing potential reper repercussions in the region of his military responsibility, Zini said, quote, It was easy to take the shot from Washington and walk away from it. We had to live there." Zini's distinct preference would have been to build up counter-terrorism capabilities in neighboring countries, such as Uzbekistan, but he told us that he could not drum up much interest in, or money, for such a purpose, from Washington. Partly, he thought, because these countries had dictatorial governments. After the decision in which fear of collateral damage was an important factor, not to use cruise missiles against Kandahar in December 1998. Shelton and officers in the Pentagon developed plans for using an AC-130 gunship instead of cruise missile strikes. Designed specifically for the Special Forces, the version of the AC-130, known as quote-unquote spooky, can fly in fast or from high altitude, undetected by radar, guided to its zone by extraordinary complex electronics it is capable of rapidly firing precision-guided 25, 40, and 105 mm projectiles. Because the system could target more precisely than a salvo of cruise missiles, it had a much lower risk of causing collateral damage. After giving Clark a briefing and being encouraged to proceed, Shelton formally directed Zini and General Peter Shoemaker who headed the Special Operations Command to develop plans for an AC-130 mission against bin Laden's headquarters and infrastructure in Afghanistan. The Joint Staff prepared a decision paper for deployment of the Special Operations aircraft. Though Berger and Clark continued to indicate interest in this option, the AC-130s were never deployed. Clark wrote at the time that Zini opposed their use, and John Maher, the Joint Staff's Deputy Director of Operations, agreed that this was Zini's position. Zini himself does not recall blocking the option. 
He told us that he understood the Special Operations Command had never thought the intelligence good enough to justify actually moving AC-130s into position. Shoemaker says, on the contrary, that he thought the AC-130 option feasible. The most likely explanation for the two generals' differing recollections is that both of them thought serious preparation for any such operation would require a long-term redeployment of special operations forces to the Middle East or South Asia. The AC-130s would need bases, because the aircraft's unrefueled range was only a little over 2,000 miles. They needed search-and-rescue backup, which would have still less range. Thus, an AC-130 deployment had to be embedded in a wider political and military concept involving Pakistan or other neighboring countries to address issues relating to basing and overflight. No one ever put such an initiative on the table. Singh, therefore, cautioned about simply ordering up AC-130 deployments for a quick strike. Shoemaker planned for what he saw as a practical strike option, and the underlying issues were not fully engaged. The Joint Staff Decision Paper was never turned into a, an intelligence policy paper. The same was true for the option of using ground units from Special Operations Command. Within the command, some officers, such as Shoemaker, wanted the mission of, quote, putting boots on the ground, unquote, to get at bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. At the time, Special Operations was designated as, quote, supporting command, unquote, not a, quote, supported command, unquote. That is, it supported a theater commander and did not prepare its own plans for dealing with Al-Qaeda. Shoemaker proposed to Shelton and Cohen that special operations became a supported command, but the proposal was not adopted. Had it been accepted, he says, he would have taken on the Al-Qaeda mission instead of deferring to Zini. Lieutenant General William Boykin, the current deputy under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence and a founding member of Delta Force, told us that, quote, opportunities were missed because of an unwillingness to take risk and a lack of vision and understanding. Unquote. President Clinton relied on the advice of General Shelton, who informed him that without intelligence on bin Laden's location, a commander raid's chance of failure was high. Shelton told President Clinton that he would go forward with quote, boots on the ground unquote, if the president ordered him to do so. However, he had to ensure that the president was completely aware of the large logistical problems inherent in a military operation. The special operations plans were apparently conceived as another quick-strike option, an option to insert forces after the United States received actionable intelligence. President Clinton told the commission that, quote, if we had really good intelligence about where Osama bin Laden was, I would have done it, unquote. Zini and Shoemaker did make preparations for possible very high-risk in-and-out operations to capture or kill terrorists. Cohen told the commission that the notion of putting military personnel on the ground without some reasonable certitude that bin Laden was in a particular location would have resulted in the mission's failure and the loss of life in a fruitless effort. None of the officials were aware of the ambitious plan developed months earlier by lower-level defense officials. In our interviews, some military officers repeatedly invoked the analogy of Desert One and the failed 1980 hostage rescue mission in Iran. 
They were dubious about a quick-strike approach to using special operations forces, which they thought complicated and risky. Such efforts would have required basis in the region, but all of the options were unappealing. Pro-Taliban elements of Pakistan's military might warn bin Laden or his associates of pending operations. With nearly basing options limited, an alternative was to fly from ships in the Arabian Sea or from land bases in the Persian Gulf, as was done after 9-11. Such operations would then have to be supported from long distances, overflying the airspace of nations that might not have been supportive or aware of U.S. efforts. However, these hurdles were addressed, and if the military could then operate regularly in the region for a long period, perhaps clandestinely, it might attempt to gather intelligence and wait for an opportunity. One special operations commander said his view of actionable intelligence was that if you, quote, give me the action, I will give you the intelligence, unquote. But this course would still be risky, in light both of the difficulties already mentioned and of the danger that U.S. operations might fail disastrously. We have found no evidence that such a long-term political-military approach for using special operations forces in the region was proposed to, or analyzed by, the small group, even though such capability had been honed for at least a decade within the Defense Department. Therefore, the debate looked to some like bold proposals from civilians meeting hypercaution from the military. Clark saw it this way. Of the military, he said to us, quote, they were very, very, very reluctant. Unquote. But from another perspective, poorly informed proposals for bold action were pitted against experienced professional judgment. That was how Secretary of Defense Cohen viewed it. He said to us, quote, I would have to place my judgment call in terms of, do I believe that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, former commander of Special Forces Command, is in a better position to make a judgment on the feasibility of this than perhaps Mr. Clark? Unquote. Beyond a large-scale political-military commitment to build up a covert or clandestine capability using American personnel on the ground, either military or CIA, there was still larger option that could have been considered, invading Afghanistan itself. Every official we questioned about the possibility of an invasion of Afghanistan said that it was almost unthinkable, absent a provocation such as 9-11 because of poor prospects for cooperation from Pakistan and other nations, or because they believed the public would not support it. Cruise missiles were, and would remain, the only military option on the table. The Desert Camp, February 1999 Early in 1999, the CIA received reporting that bin Laden was spending much of his time at one of several camps in Afghan deserts south of Kandahar. At the beginning of February, bin Laden was reportedly located in the vicinity of the Sheikh Ali camp, a desert hunting camp being used by visitors from a Gulf state. Public sources have stated that these visitors were from the United Arab Emirates. Reporting from the CIA's assets provided a detailed description of the hunting camp, including its size, location, resources, and security, as well as of bin Laden's smaller adjacent camp. Because this was not an urban area, missiles launched against it would have less risk of causing collateral damage. On February 8th, the military began it to ready itself for a possible strike. 
The next day, National Technical Intelligence confirmed the location and description of the larger camp and showed the nearby presence of an official aircraft of the United Arab Emirates. But the location of bin Laden's quarters could not be pinned down so precisely. The CIA did its best to answer a host of questions about the larger camp and its residents, and about bin Laden's daily schedule and routines to support military contingency planning. According to reporting from the tribals, bin Laden regularly went from his adjacent camp to the larger camp where he visited the Emiratis. The tribals expected him to be at the hunting camp for such a visit, at least until mid-morning on February 11th. Clark wrote to Berger's deputy on February 10th that the military was then doing targeting work to hit the main camp with cruise missiles and should be in position to strike the following morning. Speaker of the House Dennis Hastart appears to have been briefed on the subject. No strike was launched. By February 12th, bin Laden had apparently moved on and the immediate strike plans became moot. According to CIA and defense officials, policymakers were concerned about the danger that a strike would kill an Emirati prince or other senior officials who might have been with bin Laden or close by. Clark told us the strike was called off after consultations with Director Tennant because the intelligence was dubious, and it seemed to Clark as if the CIA was presenting an option to attack America's best counterterrorism alley in the Gulf. The lead CIA official in the field, Gary Schroen, felt that the intelligence reporting in this case was very reliable. The bin Laden unit chief, Mike, agreed. Schroen believed today that this was a lost opportunity to kill bin Laden before 9-11. Even after bin Laden's departure from the area, CIA officers hoped he might return, seeing the camp as a magnet that could draw him for as long as it was still set up. The military maintained its readiness for another strike opportunity. On March 7, 1999, Clark called a UAE official to express his concerns about possible associations between Emirati officials and bin Laden. Clark later wrote in a memorandum of this conversation, that the call had been approved at an interrogency meeting and cleared with the CIA. When the former bin Laden unit chief found out about Clark's call, he questioned CIA officials who denied having given such a clearance. Imagery confirmed that less than a week after Clark's phone call, the camp was hurriedly dismantled and the site was deserted. CIA officials, including Deputy Director for Operations Pavit, were right. Our rate. Mike thought the dismantling of the camp erased a possible site for targeting bin Laden. The United Arab Emirates was becoming both a valued counterterrorism alley of the United States and a persistent counterterrorism problem. From 1999 through early 2001, the United States and President Clinton personally pressed the UAE, one of the Taliban's only travel and financial outlets to the outside world to break off its ties and enforce sanctions, especially those relating to flights to and from Afghanistan. These efforts achieved little before 9-11. In July 1999, UAE Minister of State for Foreign Affairs Hamdan bin Zayed threatened to break with the Taliban over bin Laden. The Taliban did not take him seriously, however. Bin Zayed later told an American diplomat that the UAE 
valued its relations with the Taliban because Afghan radicals offered a counterbalance to Iranian dangers in the region. But he also noted that the UAE did not want to upset the United States. Looking for new partners Although not all CIA officials had lost faith in tribal's capabilities, many judged them to be good reporters. Few believed that they'd carried out an ambush of bin Laden. The chief of the counter-terrorist center compared relying on the tribals to playing the lottery. He and his associates, supported by Clark, pressed for developing a partnership with the Northern Alliance, even though doing so might bring the United States squarely behind one side in Afghanistan's long-running civil war. The Northern Alliance was dominated by Tajiks and drew its strength mainly from the northern and eastern parts of Afghanistan. In contrast, Taliban members came principally from Afghanistan's most numerous ethnic group, the Pashtuns, who were concentrated in the southern part of the country, extending into the northwest frontier and Baluchistan provinces in Pakistan. Because of the Taliban's behavior and its association with Pakistan, the Northern Alliance had been able at various times to obtain assistance from Russia, Iran, and India. The Alliance's leader was Afghanistan's most renowned military commander, Ahmed Shah Mossad. Reflective and charismatic, he had been one of the true heroes of the war against the Soviets. But his bands had been charged with more than one massacre, and the Northern Alliance was widely thought to finance itself in part through trade in heroin. Nor had Mossad shown much aptitude for governing, except as a ruthless warlord. Nevertheless, Tenet told us Mossad seemed the most interesting possible new ally against bin Laden. In February 1999, Tenet sought President Clinton's authorization to enlist Mossad and his forces as partners. In response to this request, the President signed the Memorandum of Notification, whose language he personally altered. Tenet says he saw no significance in the President's changes. So far as he was concerned, it was the language of August 1998, expressing a preference for capture, but accepting the possibility that bin Laden could not be brought out alive. We are blowing the same ground, Tenet said. CIA officers described Mossad's reaction when he heard that the United States wanted him to capture and not kill bin Laden. One characterized Mossad's body language as, quote-unquote, a wince. Schroen recalled Mossad's response as, quote, You guys are crazy, you haven't changed a bit, unquote. In Schroen's opinion, the capture proviso inhibited Mossad and his forces from going after bin Laden, but did not completely stop them. The idea, however, was a long shot. Bin Laden's usual base of activity was near Kandahar, far from the front lines of Taliban operations against the Northern Alliance. Kandahar, May 1999 It was in Kandahar that perhaps the last, and most likely the best, opportunity arose for targeting bin Laden with cruise missiles before 9-11. In May 1999, CIA assets in Afghanistan reported on bin Laden's location in and around Kandahar over the course of five days and nights. The reporting was very detailed and came from several sources. If this intelligence was not quote-unquote actionable, working-level officials said at the time and today it was hard for them to imagine how any intelligence on bin Laden on Afghanistan would meet the standard. Communications were good and the cruise missiles were ready. Quote, this was in our strike zone, 
unquote, a senior military officer said. Quote, it was a fat pitch, a home run, unquote. He expected the missiles to fly. When the decision came back that they should stand down, not shoot, the officer said, quote, we all just slumped, unquote. He told us he knew of no one at the Pentagon or the CIA who thought it was a bad gamble. Bin Laden, quote, should have been a dead man, unquote, that night, he said. Working-level CIA officials agreed. While there was a conflicting intelligence report about Bin Laden's whereabouts, the experts discounted it. At the time, CIA working-level officials were told by their managers that the strikes were not ordered because the military doubted the intelligence and worried about collateral damage. Replying to a frustrated colleague in the field, the Bin Laden unit chief wrote, quote, Having a chance to get Bin Laden three times in 36 hours, foregoing the chance each time has made me a bit angry. The DCI finds himself alone at the table with the other principals, basically saying, We'll go along with your decision, Mr. Director, and implicitly saying that the agencies will hang alone if the attack doesn't get Bin Laden. Unquote. But the military officer quoted earlier recalled that the Pentagon had been willing to act. He told us that Clark informed him and others that Tenet assessed the chance of the intelligence being accurate as 50-50. This officer believed that Tenet's assessment was the key to the decision. Tenet told us he does not remember any details about this episode, except that the intelligence came from a single, uncorroborated source, and that there was a risk of collateral damage. The story is further complicated by Tenet's absence from the critical principals meeting on the strike. He was apparently out of town. His deputy, John Gordon, was representing the CIA. Gordon recalled having presented the intelligence in a positive light, with appropriate caveats, but stating that this intelligence was about as good as it could get. Berger remembered only that in all such cases, the call had been Tenet's. Berger felt sure that Tenet was eager to get Bin Laden. In his view, Tenet did his job responsibly. Quote, George would call and say, We just don't have it, unquote, Berger said. The decision not to strike in May 1999 may now seem hard to understand. In fairness, we note two points. First, in December 1998, the principal's wariness about ordering a strike appears to have been vindicated. Bin Laden left his room unexpectedly, and if a strike had been ordered, he would not have been hit. Second, the administration, and the CIA in particular, was in the midst of intense scrutiny and criticism in May 1999 because faulty intelligence had just led the United States to mistakenly bomb the Chinese embassy in Belgrade during the NATO war against Serbia. This episode may have made officials more cautious than otherwise had been the case. From May 1999 until September 2001, policymakers did not again actively consider a missile strike against bin Laden. The principals did give some further consideration in 1999 to more general strikes, reviving Clark's, quote, Delenda, unquote, notion of hitting camps and infrastructure to s disrupt al-Qaeda's organization. In the first months of 1999, the joint staff had developed a broader target list to undertake a, quote-unquote, focus campaign against the infrastructure of Bin Laden's network and to hit Taliban government sites as well. General Shelton told us that the Taliban targets were, quote-unquote, easier to hit and more substantial. Part of the context for considering broader strikes in the summer of 1999 
with renewed worry about bin Laden's ambitions to acquire weapons of mass destruction. In May and June, the U.S. government received a flurry of ominous reports, including more information about chemical weapons training or development at the Durenta camp, and possible attempts to amass nuclear material at Herat. By late June, U.S. and other intelligence services had concluded that al-Qaeda was in pre-attack mode, perhaps again involving Abu Hafs, the Mauritanian. On June 25th, at Clark's request, Berger convened the small group in his office to discuss the alert, bin Laden's WMD programs, and his location. Quote, should we preempt by attacking UBL facilities? Unquote. Clark urged Berger to ask his colleagues. In his handwritten notes on the meeting paper, Berger jotted down the presence of 7 to 11 families in the Tarnik Farms facility, which could mean 60 to 65 casualties. Berger noted that the possible, quote-unquote, slight impact on bin Laden, and added, quote, if he responds, we're blamed, unquote. The NSC staff raised the option of waiting until after a terrorist attack, and then retaliating, including possible strikes on the Taliban but Clark observed that bin Laden would probably empty his camps after an attack. The military route seemed to have reached a dead end. In December 1999, Clark asked Berger to ask the principals to ask themselves, quote, why have there been no real options lately for direct U.S. military action, unquote. There are no notes recording whether the question was discussed, or if it was, how it was answered. Reports of possible attacks by bin Laden kept coming on throughout 1999. They included a threat to blow up the FBI building in Washington, D.C. In September, the CSG reviewed a possible threat to a flight out of Los Angeles or New York. These warnings came amid dozens of others that flooded in. With military and diplomatic options practically exhausted by the summer of 1999, the U.S. government seemed to be back where it had been in the summer of 1998 relying on the CIA to find some other option. That picture also seemed discouraging. Several disruptions and renditions aimed against the broader al-Qaeda network had succeeded, but covert action efforts in Afghanistan had not been fruitful. In mid-1999, new leaders arrived at the counter-terrorist center in the bin Laden unit. The new director of CTC, replacing Jeff, was Kofer Black, the new head of the section that included the bin Laden unit was Richard Black. Richard and their colleague began working on a new operational strategy for attacking al-Qaeda. Their starting point was to get better intelligence, relying more on the CIA's own sources and less on the tribals. In July 1999, President Clinton authorized the CIA to work with several governments to capture bin Laden and extended the scope of efforts to bin Laden's principal lieutenants. The president reportedly also authorized a covert action under carefully limited circumstances, which, if successful, would have resulted in bin Laden's death. Attorney General Reno again expressed concerns on policy grounds. She was worried about the danger of retaliation. The CIA also developed the short-lived effort to work with a Pakistani team that we discussed earlier and an initiative to work with Uzbekistan. The Uzbeks needed basic equipment and training. No action could be expected from March 2000 at the earliest. In fall 1999, DCI Tenet unveiled the CIA's new bin Laden strategy. It was called simply, quote-unquote, the plan, 
The plan proposed continuing disruption in rendition operations worldwide. It announced a program for hiring and trading better officers with counterterrorism skills, recruiting more assets, and trying to penetrate Al-Qaeda's ranks. The plan aimed to close gaps in technical intelligence collection, signal and imagery as well. In addition, the CIA would increase contacts with Northern Alliance rebels fighting the Taliban. With a new operation strategy, the CIA evaluated its capture options. None scored high marks. The CIA had no confidence in the Pakistani efforts in the event that bin Laden traveled to the Kandahar region in southern Afghanistan. The tribal network there was unlikely to attack a heavily guarded bin Laden. The counter-terrorist center rated the chance of success at less than 80%. To the northwest, the Uzbeks might be ready for a cross-border sortie in six months. Their chance of success was also rated at less than 10%. In the northeast were Mossad's Northern Alliance forces, perhaps the CIA's best option. In late October, a group of officials from the counter-terrorist center flew into the Panjshir Valley to meet up with Mossad a hazardous journey in rickety helicopters that would be repeated several times in the future. Mossad appeared committed to helping the United States collect intelligence on bin Laden's activities and whereabouts, and agreed to try to capture him if the opportunity arose. The bin Laden unit was satisfied that its reporting on bin Laden would now have a second source, but it also knew that Mossad would act against bin Laden only if his own interests and those of the United States were intersected. By early December, the CIA rated this possibility at less than 15%. Finally, the CIA considered the possibility of putting U.S. personnel on the ground in Afghanistan. The CIA had been discussing this option with Special Operations Command and found an enthusiasm on the working level, but reluctance at higher levels. CIA saw a 95% chance of Special Operations Command forces capturing bin Laden if deployed but less than a 5% chance of such deployment. Sending CIA officers into Afghanistan was to be considered, quote, if the gain clearly outweighs the risk, unquote. But at this time, no such gains presented themselves to warrant the risk. As mentioned earlier, such a protracted deployment of U.S. Special Operations Forces into Afghanistan, perhaps as part of a team joined to a deployment of the CIA's own officers, would have required a major policy initiative, probably combined with efforts to secure the support of at least one or two neighboring countries, to make a long-term commitment, establish a durable presence on the ground, and be prepared to accept the associated risks and costs. Such a military plan was never developed for intelligence consideration before 9-11. As 1999 came to a close, the CIA had a new strategic plan in place for capturing bin Laden but no option was rated as having more than a 15% chance of achieving that object. End of chapter 4.5